Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. We've got a great panel here today we, and a packed program. We're going to talk about the nation-state, strongly backed by Scott Morrison in a recent speech and in an IPA report we'll tell you about today in a sneak peek. Uh, we'll also review 75 years of the Federal Liberal Party and the celebrations of that milestone. And finally, we'll look at the NBA's attempt to grovel its way out of a clash of values with China. For that segment, uh, stay tuned because it involves American basketball. We'll be joined by a very special guest who actually knows what the hell he's talking about. (laughs) Uh, In our books and culture segment, a very famous books and culture segment, we have uh, Douglas Murray's new book, The Madness of Crowds, uh, the classic movie All the President's Men, uh, classic series Breaking Bad and... Inevitably, The Joker, <laughs> uh, the new movie with uh, Joaquin, 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 Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. Uh, I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Uh, also in the studio with us are IPA Research Fellows, Dr Zach Gorman Howdy. and Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to join or donate. And if you're listening to this or watching it in an app, uh, please review it and uh, five stars would be a really good thing uh, for the future of this podcast. Um, But first up, as I mentioned, we are going to talk about it's, of course, everyone knows it's 451 years since the... uh, the modern order was born at the Peace of Westphalia and the, the nation states had its ups and downs, Chris, but uh, it's having an up moment at the moment. It's having an up moment. So um, <laughs> thank you. That's that's a hell of a um, uh, hell of a hook for this discussion. Yes, um, the hook that we had planned on, though, Scott, to talk about oh, yes, sir. was um, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave a speech to the Lowy Institute on precisely that, on the nation state um, last week, criticising what he described as negative globalism that's the quote australia he said cannot leave it to others to set the standards that will shape our global economy he's announced an audit of global institutions and rulemaking processes that affect australia he has contrasted um what he says as positive and practical globalism which is responsible and participative international agency in addressing global issues against um, uh, negative globalism that coercively seeks to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and worse still an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy this has been described by both morrison's supporters and opponents as um trumpian or quasi-Trumpian, I thought it's worth perhaps having a little bit of a reflection about what we think about his speech before we go on to the to um, talk about some of the research that, that Zach and um, Andrew have done. Anyway, so Andrew, um, uh, uh, w- what is your take out from the speech? Is this, is this positively Trumpian, Andrew? Well, I think that like so much that the, the Liberal Party does these days, he wanted to have a foot in each camp. So there are some some sort of red meat rhetoric for people more like me. And then there was, uh, but there was also this, you know, underlying theme of like, you know, being essentially continuing to be a good global citizen, whatever that means. And, and you know, that this wasn't some sort of um, full-blown retreat from, uh, you know, from globalism in the sense of, um, you know, participating in global institutions and things. It was more... um, a reassertion of the idea that Australia will do so when it's in our interests. Um, so to that extent, yeah, I thought that there was, like, it's, it's 
don't get me wrong, it's very welcome to hear an Australian Prime Minister at least flagging this, that, um, you know, that for so long Australia has portrayed itself as some sort of um, responsible middle power and that that means that, you know, being all in on the so-called rules-based international order is like a default position in Australian politics. So I think for that, that's why it attracted so much interest is that it's really interesting to hear an Australian Prime Minister say something even vaguely different. But when I was looking at the speech, I thought it still had this kind of dual constituency problem that the Liberal Party tends to have. Zach, do you buy this good, bad globalism? There's a good, there's a, sorry, there's a positive and practical globalism and there's a negative globalism. Obviously, it's necessary to cooperate with other states to have these uh, avenues of diplomacy and all the rest of it. But I am very sceptical on too much international cooperation, particularly a UN that gives equal representation to dictatorships, gives equal representation to nation states outside of the Security Council, gives equal representation to nation states regardless of their sort of size and influence and these sorts of things. So it's not a, it's not a democratic thing at all. I think um, it's interesting this comparison to Trump is only being made because it is 2019. I mean, the speech itself had a um, paraphrasing of John Howard's We Will Decide Who Comes to This Country. Um, there's a long, there was a James Curran article about the sort of long tradition going back to Menzies of being a bit sceptical about the international community trampling on sovereignty. So this is nothing new. It's just that it had to be reiterated because, you know, we've been having Turnbull and these people who aren't as interested in the liberal tradition. Is is that then, so, uh, is that what we're discussing right now? So is is this, the word globalism just describing a traditional um, right of centre or conservative um, uh, antipathy or distaste of international bureaucracies that are s- filled with unfree countries. So, so for, ever since um, uh, Australian conservatism has been sort of uh, a guiding force, it's been hostile or um, concerned about these international bureaucracies, international regulation, the takeover of international human rights law by the left and all that sort of thing. Is is the word globalism as it's being used now just another, just the, the new way we say that? Or is there something new happening here? Or are we asking them to be I, against something else? I think it's it's worth distinguishing, I guess, between the use of the word globalism and the use of the word globalisation. So globalisation as a process... Um, of the intensification of um, international relations um, and interpersonal relations um, created by technologies of communication and transport and things like this. So there's globalisation, which is a process of integration of the global economy. Um, globalism is an ism, right? It's a uh, properly understood, it's a, a position that it is good to, f- uh, to strengthen, to further create uh, governance institutions at an international level. Uh, and I think that is the controversial part about it. And, and, and the question is, can you have one without the other? So as you have this intensification of trade relations and, and technological transfer and things like this, does that necessitate global governance uh, in a, to, a, to an extent that we haven't had before? And so Morrison is putting down a marker and saying, Australia will continue to have trading relationships. Australia will continue to participate in global fora 
forums because we never use the Latin plurals. Um, because so sorry we, about that. It's because we speak English. Uh, yes, exactly. No, forum, no, no, it's true. <laughs> I actually corrected myself. Um, forums. Um, so we'll continue to do that. But what he's saying is we're going to step back from this ideological position that the fate of humanity is global governance. Yeah, See, and yep. so, sorry, Chris, I, because when, when you talk about the traditions of the centre-right, it, it's not that it's been opposed to international institutions per se. I mean, coming particularly coming off the back of World War Two. Um, so, well, World War One, we had the League of Nations, which Australia was a member of, a uh, great uh, series of novels by Frank Morehouse about how we participated in that. World War Two, we were there at the birth of the United Nations, the Bretton Woods uh, global financial order. Uh, we're very much part of that. But um, what happened over time was was that grab for power by the by those institutions, um, and you know the, the the further ceding of our sovereignty, the exploitation uh, by the Hawke government and the the High Court of the external affairs power. So it's not an issue with. Uh, the creation of instant international institutions through treaties duly considered and signed off on by by national governments. It's, it's, it's just the continuing um, aggrandizement of those international institutions and and the usurping uh, usurping of of the sovereign authority of the nation state that, I, that the centre right is concerned with. What, what I, I I I take Andrew's point that there may be a relationship between globalism as an ideology and globalization as an economic process. But let me give you an alternative interpretation of what's happened. And this is looking at exactly how these global institutions have formed. So very often, the reason that we have all these international organizations that um, Scott Morrison is rightly concerned about um, is because we, in fact, we regulate our own economies. And we regulate our own economies, and then we want to plug those economies into the rest of um, uh, into the rest of the world. So we want to trade while regulating at the same time. And the the reason I I, I come to this is because, in fact, my PhD thesis, which was on the prudential regulation of banking, we ended up globalizing our regulatory framework in the Basel Capital Accords. This happened in the nineteen um, early nineteen nineties, and and continues to at this day. But the reason we did that is because we had increasingly globally interested banks that were, um, uh, and at the same time, we were trying to impose extremely high regulatory barriers on them. So we, so, so we joined in the rest of the planet trying to regulate banks at a global level. And so much of what we're talking about, particularly in things like free trade agreements, um, particularly in things like environmental accords, is because we've decided that we want to have domestic, uh, heavily regulated domestic economies and globalization at the same time. And that's really hard to do without heavily regulated international frameworks. Couldn't be, I couldn't, think that's bad. But it can't I be otherwise. We should deregulate. It can't, <laughs> but it can't be otherwise because we want to retain our ability to regulate. We want to I retain don't. our ability. Well, <laughs> if, if we are to have a nation state, uh, then we want to have the ability to govern ourselves, and then th that, and if other countries feel the same way, then that necessitates uh, international relations that are predicated on the idea that at best we can harmonise uh, what we do internally with what other countries do internally, and that that is something that's worthwhile. The idea that we should all substitute uh, our internal preferences for whatever works best or most efficiently at a global level is in fact the problem. And then what we get is from uh, 
from working it out with other countries um, bilaterally or multilaterally, um, we end up with a kind of equilibrium, equilibrium that we can live with, right? It's not uh, perfectly free trade. It's a kind of, this is why these trade agreements are so complex. We arrive at kind of a second best thing. Then, as with all of our institutions, we start throwing up a narrative about the institutions themselves and how they're self-justifying and that they weren't actually the product of a kind of conflict of values but, but themselves intrinsically valuable. And we oh, yeah. put up a story about this and then suddenly our sovereignty is gone because we're wedded to this kind of ideological fable that we've spun that was really just an ex post facto rationalisation for a, a second best equilibrium. No, and, and as you well know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the UN wrote in 1948 came out of magic, basically. It's just, it came down from, from the heavens. But no, you, you're absolutely right. But what, what I think is underappreciated and is going to be underappreciated by someone like Scott Morrison or really any policymaker is that it is so much of these global regulatory things don't come from just an ideology somewhere else. So much of it comes from the same ideology and the same political dynamics that have given us our incredibly heavily regulated yeah, The ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> <laughs> we will get to that. <laughs> um, but let's, let's move on to um, uh, something slightly closer to home with this nationhood rather than globalism. The Senate is actually running an inquiry into nationhood, national identity and, um, and democracy at the moment, which is covering things like the rights and obligations of citizenship, social cohesion in the nation state, the role of globalization, um, and the extent to which nation states balance domestic imperatives and sovereignty and international obligations. I guess we can take Scott Morrison's speech as his submission to that inquiry. But you, um, uh, as in Andrew, Zach, and of course, um, the IPA's Dan Wild, also wrote a submission to this inquiry. Um, who wants to um, explain what on earth you said? Well, I've got it in front of me, so I can... <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, you mean, just read it. That's yeah. The <laughs> yeah, no. It's going to be a very long podcast. Shut yourselves in, because this thing's about 50 pages. No, the... Um, so this is actually... This is, a, this is a, a, a research report that we have submitted to the inquiry to help them with their inquiry. Um, that is kind of we're, Yes, because yeah, that's what we're here for. We're helpful. Um, the report is called Australian Values and the Enduring Importance of the Nation States. That gives you a little bit of an idea of what, we, what we've tried to do here. The, the Senate's inquiry um, had extremely broad terms of reference. Uh, you could have really written anything. Uh, I <laughs> don't envy, I don't envy, <laughs> don't envy the staffers who are putting together the final report. I had a look at some of the submissions that went up yesterday. Um, they cover a wide range of topics. Uh, anyway, ours is, um, as, as I said, um, we, t we talk in this about um, what the nation state is valuable for, uh, why it's valuable. And what we've tried to do is we tried to put Australian values and, and some of the things that the IPA always talks about, um, you know, our, our freedoms, our, like our, fu our fundamental freedoms as Australians, um, you know, some of the values that underpin those within, a, within the historical context of the Australian nation state. Um, and so we talk about nationalism, which is one of the, one of the things that they asked about. Um, and so there's, there's this old distinction, you know, between patriotism and nationalism. Now, it's a little bit superficial. Uh, one of the things that people don't really know about patriotism, why we didn't really use the word very much in this, is so patriotism comes from the word patria, and patria, which is the, the land of our fathers. 
And the important thing about that is the historical dimension. And this is really what, um, because Zach is our professional historian, we've tried to put a bit of a historical framework around this and talk about how um, our liberties in Australia are, are real things. They're, they actually exist. They're not theoretical constructs. Um, and they're worthwhile. I mean, they could exist is what you're saying. Yeah, well, they could. <laughs> uh, and that the, our, the national identity is important in, 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 the, in the way that it helps us create Australia as a home where we all live that has meaning for all of us uh, and, and provides a, a, a network of meanings within which we choose and act, uh, and, and act as autonomous individuals. Well, I found this a bit of an awkward thing to be doing, justifying Australia as a nation state because I am a secessionist by persuasion. <laughs> so I sort of had to build it up to be something. Is um, there a New South Wales secessionist movement? Uh, yeah, it's me. Pretty much. A close, everybody's leaving New South Wales. I a close reading of this document reveals that it's a sort of New South Wales imperialism. So you got to is it Russell Kirk that says you got to read between the lines? Uh, Strauss. 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 reading is actually yeah, yeah, really anti-nation state. Yeah. But sorry. We, we had a, in that in that regard, we had a pretty logical progression as far as um, what we describe as localism, which is also um, could be more toffily described as the principle of subsidiarity, the idea that political decisions should be made at the most local level possible because that is more democratic, it gives people more control, it should ultimately lead to better decision making. So we had a sort of logical progression from justifying the nation state over too much globalist bureaucracy to then justifying federalism within Australia's nation state to then sort of talking a bit about by the end, even how we could give more powers over to local government and just really reinforce that localist idea. And another part of the narrative that I really latched onto is that historical um, part of it, when we're talking about the fact that we're losing control, that more and more decisions are being made at the international level with very little democratic oversight, Australia was created in an extraordinary act of popular sovereignty. Um, not only did the, ref the constitution have to be approved by referendums in each of the colonies, but the constitution itself had been drafted by delegates who had been directly elected um, by the individual colonies. So it's this real direct democratic mandate and the whole idea of um, the referendum is that you repeat that process um, of having a direct democratic mandate to change the constitution, to change what the federal government is supposed to be doing, but that's ultimately been undermined. And this is the sort of start of the rot for me, is the fact that the federal government has increasingly just gone, well, we don't really want to talk to the Australian people because we won't get the answer that we want. So the sort of where it all comes together is the external affairs power and how this glo globalist international agreements are being used to override Australia's federal constitution in a deliberate attempt to subvert having to go through the referendum process because the referendum process is too difficult. Do you both or either see a tension between that um, so a, a belief in localism, a belief in the nation state, and potentially then you could have a belief in in a global community as well. Or or is our sympathy supposed to be directed towards the nation state and and local and global is is, is uh, sort of secondary or, or non-existent? Is there a tension there? 
Well, one of the one of the tensions is is this idea of nationalism. So again, talking about an ism, um, and so the national identity is important because it um, as a as a kind of container for for the various meanings that we've overlaid on our country and the way that we relate to each other, um, and the sense of order that we derive from that, um, the predictability, um, reliability, that sort of thing, trust. Um, but nationalism can can it can be uncontroversial if nationalism means like a world of nation states. I think that's relatively uncontroversial even today. Um, but nationalism where it's a, either in a progressive sense where the, the nation is utilised for a grand ideological project so that um, that trust that is built up over time is kind of exploited um, by the leadership for a, you know, a national project of some sort. Um, I think that that starts to erase these local identities that... Um, when that, when we're all marshaled together into some kind of active nationalism, um, then there is a tension there. There's another tension when um, nationalism comes to mean um, the exclusive use of the state apparatus by a particular group of people um, who admit no new members um, and, in fact, actively hostile to other people, even when they're citizens of the country. Um, and so, and again, that excludes some people from um, the benefits of those institutions and so again that's another tension because those people might want to do their own things at a local level but the harmonious arrangement of this is to is to make sure that at the local level people are exercising the power over things that are meaningful to them and that as you progress sort of up the hierarchy um, and at the apex of our hierarchy is the constitution and the parliament uh, as you progress up that the issues become become broader and more more general um, and so there is a way of arranging it harmoniously, but a kind of activist nationalism or even a kind of activist civic republicanism, the idea that we're all engaged in some sort of meaning construction type thing um, where our uh, worth as individuals is derived from our political participation. That, yeah, that we, is we have to stand up in the town hall and, and give the speeches. Yeah, and unfortunately sort of in Australia, we don't have this kind of nonsensical American idea that creates such a tension for them. Um, we're constitutional monarchy, which is a much more solid arrangement. Um, <laughs> but, in, but in any event, there are tensions there, and we've, we've tried to talk about how it's really about the harmonious distribution of powers. Does this have any um, uh, policy consequences? Do, I mean, so, so obviously you've responded to the nation-state inquiry that the government's having for, I guess, reasons. Um, but but what, are the what are the practical policy consequences of this discussion? Um, well... Two things. So, yeah, we've already discussed localism and yeah. um, re-establishing federalism and all the things that we've sort of been pushing through. Another aspect of this inquiry, it wasn't just about sort of nationhood in itself. A lot of it was about a disenfranchisement with the political system, movements towards minor parties, populism, all these sorts of things that the, that the status quo isn't holding and why, those, why that may be. Um, so what we injected in, because we always want to put in IPA policy prescriptions and other IPA research, um, it's there's a stay lot on of, message. There's a stay, lot of cut, there's a lot of cut and paste in this research. <laughs> that's that's how it got to seventeen thousand words so quickly. No, no, it's all um, very original. Hey, no, it's pa it's paraphrased. <laughs> Para paraphrasing. <laughs> um, but another real suggestion that um, we were driving is um, a stake in the community that we need to do things to encourage people to be able to own their own home through unlocking land, through decreasing regulation, to unleash prosperity through allowing people to have um, jobs, 
reducing the minimum wage and barriers to entry, all these sorts of things, because ultimately having a cohesive nation and having people buy into the political system comes down to having a reason to care about the future, having a reason to care about stability, all these sorts of things. No, and um, that's uh, excellent research there that, uh, that you put together for this submission. And uh, some of those uh, themes are... Were picked up, uh, have been picked up over the years uh, by the Liberal Party, not always, but sometimes, uh, which is currently celebrating its 75th anniversary, or at least at the federal level. You would argue the New South Wales Liberal Party has a much older lineage. Uh, so Scott Morrison's also been busy celebrating that. And the Australian has actually been interviewing lots of former Prime Ministers um, uh, to give their views about what the Liberal Party means. But, Zach, I mean, again, you're the historian, so do your history work for us. Uh, okay, so... Um, Perform like a history monkey. The, there was no <laughs> founding date for the modern Liberal Party of Australia. It was a process. There was meetings in Canberra. There was meeting. This is the meeting most classic historian in, in, in Look, Albury. There's, there's no yeah, anyway, it's the 75th moment. anniversary. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 good. The 13th is the anniversary of the process. Um, and the UAP, um, the United Australia Party that was the direct predecessor, was created um, basically to fight the Depression, to fight um, attempts at repudiating Australia's debts. And it was actually one of the most successful in it, political parties in Australian history in its initial task. Um, Joseph Lyons is an unsung hero. We got out of the Great Depression faster than America because we took conservative economic means. But by the time you got to World War II, that premise was dying and the whole thing was falling apart. Um, the 1943 election is the sort of low point of the centre-right in Australian political history. It's the largest Labor victory there's ever been. Um, the coalition was being led by the country party and in Arthur Fadden to that election because the UAP was so fractured that they couldn't even decide on who they wanted to lead them. So Menzies, um, as the mythology goes, brings all these disparate parties together and creates, a, a, creates the modern Liberal Party to really fight the attempt in the post-war reconstruction to create a sort of socialist and interventionist state. Um, but the nature of the Liberal Party, and I've spent a lot of my um, academic career trying to talk about people like Sir Joseph Carruthers and these attempts, these original Liberal Parties, that were founded on sort of real solid ideas because the crux of the matter, as far as I'm concerned, is that at the federal level, every real attempt to create a Liberal Party has been based on compromise as the first premise. So you have the Fusion Liberal Party in 1910, you have the Nationalists to try to win the um, First World War, you have the UAP, all these sorts of things, and even trying to reconstruct the UAP into the Liberal Party is ultimately about bringing people into this sort of broad church um, rather than really inspiring people to believe in anything in any way. Is, see, I, I, I have a slightly different view. So what strikes me about the founding of the Liberal Party in '44 is that it was an explicitly ideological project in a way that its immediate predecessors were not. So the... Um, UAP was this sort of cobbled together um, party led by a um, former Labor um, grandee. Uh, the Nationalist Party came out of the um, First World War and was sort of a cobbled together version of the Conservatives that had been left after 
the collapse of the free trade movement, the um, fusion with the liberal movement and, and so forth. And it, but it just strikes me that, that Menzies took the opportunity and, and said, okay, we're going to reset. We're going to try to define what it is to mean to, to have a liberal party or conservative party, which I think we should get to, um, uh, and, and we'll start from there. And, and, and it is the vision of one particular man to make an ideological movement and of course uh, this is the debate that we're having now what was that ideological movement now um the uh, I, I quite like judith brett's um uh, description of it's a sort of moral middle class movement apart from anything else it's about the the inherent worth and inherent value of a a a majority middle class or a, and their their moral position but now we're having this and we've had this debate for the last 20 or so years about whether that means that it was a conservative party or whether it was a smaller liberal party or was it a, <laughs> as Malcolm Turnbull is now saying, a progressive party, an actively progressive party. How, um, Andrew, how would you describe the, that sort of ideological patrimony of, of the liberal party and how it's played out since? I think, I think that to the extent that it is a suburban supremacist party, <laughs> um, then it... This, and this is what I thought came out quite strongly from the election, the most recent election result, was that the Liberal Party vote was strong where people were living in homes with mortgages, with their families. Um, and so we know that the sort of the increasing concentration of our cities, the, um, the increasing impossibility of anyone, even with two jobs, affording a home, is going to reduce the size of the conservative base. Um, and we also know that when we look at the results in seats like Higgins, um, we know that um, the Liberal Party in trying to pander to um, increasingly left-wing uh, apartment renting voters is going to jeopardise its ability to appeal to people in outer suburbs. So it has a choice to make there. Um, I think, we, and we put out, uh, Dan, Dan Wilde and I, um, in the wake of the election, we put out a, a, a parliamentary research brief going through some of the booth results and things like that and, and showing where the Liberal Party vote was strongest and making this argument that if, you, if people can't own things, they have nothing to conserve and they won't be conservative voters. The question the Liberal Party confronts now, as Chris said, it faced at its formation is, does it want conservative voters? Uh, and... That this, this is the answer. Um, if it wants to be a, continue to be a representative of the suburbs, then probably it does. But if it doesn't want that, um, then its future is, is, is more Turnbull than not. I but think it, just, sorry, I, just, I am going to interrupt the flow of this because these are tremendous contributions. We've heard about the er history of the Liberal Party, everything leading up to its formation. We've heard about the, the crisis it faces. Um, it is a moment, I think, for uh, to acknowledge that uh, for two-thirds of its existence, it's, it's been uh, in government federally. Uh, it has been politically, at least, a success. And, uh, and you can argue to the extent to which it's hewed to those ideological foundations that Menzies set down for it. But it's never junked them. It's always paid a license to those ideas and, and, it, and in, in some... and has, for the most part, enacted them, certainly at its... It's high points of the, the Menzies government uh, um, to a great extent of the, the Howard government. For all its, its flaws, um, it has been a remarkable achievement. And we've seen in other countries um, where the centre-right has not been able to achieve that kind of a record. 
and there was, you know, um, even even say the UK is a close close analog where um, they did stick with central planning after the war, and it took until the to the nineteen eighties before they finally broke away from it. I mean, it was it used to be the old Labor jibe that all uh, all Menzies ever did in government was was keep the socialists out. Well. If he did nothing more than that, that was probably a good thing. <laughs> and, and, and I think it is fair to argue that he did do a little bit more than that. So um, uh, there, might, there may well be a crisis. I feel less of a crisis than there was a few years ago. The interesting thing about this, this, this ongoing tension between people who have a, a more liberal ideology and then people who arguably are you know, suburban conservative voters, um, less ideological, is that the Liberal Party has been extremely successful in mediating whatever tensions there are between those between those people. Um, arguably, it has come at a cost of, uh, you know, in, in massaging these tensions, it has become a party that is mostly about winning. Now, there's nothing in particular. <laughs> but that's that's the, what a party no, is no, 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 specifically. No, 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 no. But, no, thought, but yeah. like, if you're talking about it as an explicitly ideological yeah. project, then that is something different. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, our boss here, uh, John Roskam, wrote in his. Uh, column in the AFR that the Liberal Party was in danger of becoming an outright Peronist party that exists only to win elections and deliver patronage to whoever it is that uh, supports it. Um, now, personally, I'm a little bit more in favour of patronage than some. I would like to see some patronage for people like me. Um, <laughs> but waiting well, for the call up. But uh, I think I think that, that I we're going to get you on the administrative appeals tribunal yeah. anytime. <laughs> I, I think that that gets to your point, Scott. That um, this this critique, if you like, of Menzies that he was really only about keeping the socialists out of power, um, come hell or high water. Um, is also, you know, that's, that also feeds into a party that's mostly about winning and not this explicitly ideological project that, um, that Chris suggests. There's, a, there's an interpretation, I'm not sure I entirely agree with this, but it's, it's worth discussing. There's an interpretation of what... Bring, the Liberal Party is, like all parties, is a coalition of different, different factions and interests and ideologies and so forth. And what is the one thing that brings them together? What actually ties them together as a... Uh, what, what is its founding ideology? It's not conservatism or liberalism because that's in dispute. It's not um, uh, free trade. It's not. Um, uh, it, 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 it's not all the policies that we often discuss. What it really is is opposition to the union movement. And the one thing that brings the liberal, in this interpretation, the one thing that brings the liberal party together is being against the union movement having control of Australia's industrial relation laws, and through that, of course, Labor Party. Power, but that's stronger than just being opposed to the Labor Party. That's that that has a that has a policy program embedded in it. We don't. Well, the Liberal Party doesn't want more IR restriction. Well, it also comes back to um, sort of this liberal idea that you should never have sectional interests in represented in Parliament. You shouldn't have particularly a Labor Party that's explicitly there to do the bidding of the union movement. It's one of the great contradictions of the coalition is that the nationals are essentially set up to be a rule yeah, yeah. yeah to be a sectional interest so they're actually anti sort of liberal yeah the, the, you could certainly make an argument that the defining ideology of the liberal party over its um over its course has not been conservatism or liberalism per se it's more been stabilism there's was one great um quote um of from all people Malcolm Fraser, and when he was fighting um, 
the election just after this dismissal, one of his things that he was promising to do was take politics off the front page. Uh, can you imagine a, a sort of more mundane vision for what your party stands but for? Fun, politics funnily, not being talked about. Funnily enough, that's also my interpretation of what Tony Abbott was trying to do. He was trying to slow down the aggressive, busy Rudd Gillard Rudd years and all that sort of thing. And we saw how that went. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Six, <laughs> six months of radio silence. I think that's I think that's a noble. No, aim. I agree. I, I I support that. I, I don't want to have to think about politics, even though that would harm this podcast. Well, let's let's take a break from um, uh, from domestic politics then and look at something that's been happening in the USA. And uh, we're actually going to work a bit of uh, a bit of magic here in the uh, the IPA studio. Um, on the count of three, uh, four will become five. One, two, three. Wow! As I say. Four has become five. Uh, Chris, why is James Bolt sitting next to me? Again, another really impressive segue, Scott. Um, so the American National Basketball Association is in a stoush with the Chinese government on the one side and its and, and Chinese um, many Chinese supporters and its American supporters and fans on the other. So I thought in this context we'd bring on the director of the IPA's NBA research program, <laughs> uh, James Bolt, and of course the young IPA podcast host to describe what has actually happened and perhaps join us mainly because it got really complicated as I was trying to figure out what had happened so James what's going on with the NBA yeah so first off thanks for having me on the show you have no idea how awesome it is to bring my two worlds together of politics and the NBA <laughs> uh, so thank you to corporate America so basically what happened was uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets basically the guy in charge of making all the big-time decisions with the Houston Rockets tweeted out last week an image uh, captioned, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And uh, this went down really badly in China, as you can imagine. The Chinese broadcaster CCTV and the digital platform Tencent uh, said on Tuesday they've suspended planned broadcast of the NBA preseason games over the tweet. So the NBA, you know, we don't have evidence of this, but uh, very quickly, uh, Daryl Morey, the Houston Rockets general manager, apologised for the tweet. The Houston Rockets owner, the guy that owns the team, he has distanced himself from the tweet itself. And uh, the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, has also removed himself from the tweet. And the reason, like, it's kicked off so much is because of the NBA's relationship with China and more specifically the Houston Rockets, the team that Daryl Morey is the general manager of, his, their relationship with China. The NBA and China relationship is worth about $4 billion as of 2018, and it's gonna keep going as the NBA gets into like digital gaming platforms and stuff like that, so it's only gonna expand. And Houston Rockets are very much the forefront team of the NBA-China relationship. Houston Rockets had the player Yao Ming for nine years. If you guys know who he is, if you don't know who he is. Very tall. Very tall, seven foot six. Uh, <laughs> that's your sum total of The best player China's ever. <laughs> he was going to say that no yeah, matter what. Just, yeah, a, he happens to be very tall, an NBA player, who could imagine? But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so he was the Houston Rockets' best player for nine years. He was the best player China's ever produced. And yeah, it's just like the marquee team of the NBA-China relationships and the marquee sport in China right now is basketball, and so the US has to distance themselves. So um, how, do you, how do you think about this? So this is obviously a, a massive tension. I think it speaks to earlier before we were talking about um, uh, some of the tensions in globalization and so forth, but how do you, how do you think about um, uh, this, this obvious, almost humanitarian problem that to criticize a totalitarian government doing something terrible to a free city is somehow outside the pale of corporate America. Yeah, and it, well, it's like honestly one of the most shameful periods in NBA history, this. Like, it's absolutely disgusting because like 
the thing is, the NBA, especially under Adam Silver, the guy, the commissioner of the NBA, is, the NBA has become like the progressive league. They get involved in social issues. They talk about it openly. I mean, this is the same commissioner that moved the All Star Game from Charlotte two years ago because the state of Charlotte passed uh, laws about uh, transsexuals having to use their birth, uh, their, their gender at birth bathrooms. The NBA moved the All Star Game out of the city. But if you stand up for democracy in Hong Kong on one tweet, that's you know the end of your career, basically. So, Andrew, are there two woke capitalisms? One which is concerned about social justice in the United States oh. and one which needs to protect the Chinese Communist Party? On my little one-page notes here that I do when I come on the show, I just have a question. Is there a tension between woke capitalism and kowtowing to the CCP? And the answer I've written next to it is not really. So, <laughs> well, that's a uh, that's pretty great show. Uh, thanks for listening. So I, came, I set it up, we knocked it down. Yeah, I came, I came extremely prepared for this. But no, the, the, the point is that um, arguably there's a, a deeper ideological consistency here, which is that, and I'll hesi- I hesitate to use the word Gnosticism, Scott, but let's just call it... Ding, yep. Let's just call it <laughs> materialist utopianism. Um, and that... Any, anyway, what we've seen um, in some of the recent commentary about the Chinese Communist Party, in particular during the week that it celebrated its 70th anniversary in power in China, was a reluctance in some quarters to attribute the Chinese Communist Party's abuses to its communism. Now, one way of thinking about this is that we that there is a certain segment of the progressive left that does not want to criticise the Chinese Communist Party on ideological grounds because that would be to indict, in fact, in some way, even indirectly, their own ideology. And so, uh, is there is there a tension? Well, perhaps not. As long as everything skews left, then it's perfectly consistent. But that... But that that's a fun argument. But that... Well, that's that a true just, argument as well. That's <laughs> true and fun. But, but it, just doesn't, it just doesn't hold... So, so think about the... Um, uh, the, the instances of woke capitalism that we see in the West at the moment, which is around issues like um, uh, transgender um, issues, uh, around issues about gay marriage, around issues about race and so forth. And on on those issues, the Chinese Communist Party is uniformly not on the social justice side of that ledger. So uh, uh, now I think this is a shameful episode and I think it's a shameful episode because um, uh, not not that I don't think the um, players should be able to sign contracts that say this, but I cannot imagine living with myself if I was managing the NBA and be enforcing the Chinese Communist Party's perspective and on yet Hong they Kong. Manage. And, and yet, yet they, they manage. And, and to yet do they it. manage to do it. I mean, I guess Shock. they sleep in their buckets of money. Um, but it just doesn't strike me as precisely the same story. Yeah. Zach, what's your Zach, what's your take? Um, yeah, there's the hypocrisy of it is the thing that's um, no, it's not hypocrisy. It's consistent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the deep seated, deep seated that you're willing to stand up whenever it costs you nothing. This this is the whole thing about um, having a go at um, all these internal issues in America that. The NBA is not necessarily the most conservatively watched sport. Um, that's why the NFL has had so many more issues um, with Colin Kaepernick and the whole kneeling saga and these sorts of things because the, the NFL is really popular in the South, it's really popular in red states. 
the NBA is um, an urban game. It's basically designed to have players that are able to play it in the inner cities. So it tends to um, it tends to thrive in the places that are going to vote Democrat anyway. But yeah, that that hypocrisy and it's spreading. It's not it's not confined to the NBA. Just this morning, news broke of um, Blizzard, the games company, docking a professional gamer of $10,000 of prize money that he had earned and banning him from the entire competition because he wore a gas, a gas mask in solidarity with the Hong Kong protests. James, I, I was amazed just reading up on this um, how deep that relationship is with China and how um, how, how involved the NBA is. So um, you, you mentioned the $4 billion um, uh, at stake here, but the, the NBA also, it, it's not just broadcasting into China. They, I, I found the, the NBA has a training camp um, uh, for basketball training in the northeastern region of China, Xinjiang, where there is the ongoing persecution of the Muslim minority there. I mean, this is, they are deeply into this. Is it now more of a Chinese game than an American game? And they well, that's the thing. Like, uh, the other stat is 800 million people uh, in China watched NBA programming either on TV or digital media or the smartphones last year. That's, what is it, 2.5 ti- uh, times the entire population of the US. Like, China is the big untapped market for sport. China doesn't really traditionally have a big sport. They don't really have a history of it. You see soccer investing, you see NBA investing, and whoever gets the <laughs> AFL win, investing, AFL investing for some yeah. reason. Whoever wins it, it stands to make billions yeah. and billions. But of this dollars. this suggests right that the NBA is in a position to come down on the other side of this argument if it wants. It could win if there's 800 million people in China who like watching basketball. Then the NBA saying could have the pro Hong Kong game. Could have a pro Hong Kong game and dare the Chinese Communist Party to take NBA away from 800 million people. It won't do it. Now, why won't it do it? Well, because the thing about the Uyghurs, for example, is that they're being persecuted because they are religious, right? And what do we see? What do we see in our society from progressives? We see rampant irreligiosity, hatred of religious people. So. The consistency here is that the, the, the overall project of designing a new progressive man, right? And so they don't care how it's done. It's completely I, instrumental. I, I don't know. I, I think you're looking for conspiracy when cowardice it's is not a conspiracy. It's not, it's not a conspiracy. It's just a deep value alignment. Uh, but like the Houston Rockets owner is a Republican. Like th- this is just a bunch of people who are looking at each other going like, and the Brooklyn, oh, Nets, and the Brooklyn Nets owner. Are, are, is like they're owned by someone who's got like an investing stake in Alibaba. And it's very quickly the NBA's pivoted to be like talking to the China is like your team is now the Brooklyn Nets and you will go for these guys now and I you know fully expect a uh, great player from the Chinese Basketball League to be on the Brooklyn Nets within a few weeks just to sort of massage that relationship down. How is this affecting the sport in the US? Uh, well, that, like it's, I mean, it's, it's only like, been a few it's a days, week, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, the season hasn't begun yet. October twenty-two, it's going to be the great day, but uh, it's like <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of athletes are remain, like, compla- remaining completely silent on this, including, uh, and you're going to love this, Bushnell, but Steve Kerr is the coach of the Golden State Warriors. They've been the best team in the last, like, what, five years or something like that. Uh, he tweets out something anti-Trump or anti-guns every two days, and he was asked, do you have any comments about the China situation? And he just straight up said, no, I don't. <laughs> Wait, um, but what he said was, what he said was, well, I'd have to do a bit more research. It, because, exactly. you know, my, my opinions about Trump and guns are really well studied. <laughs> I have <laughs> books, I just have rooms yeah. full of books about these things. 
topics, but yeah. about I'm China, a professional gun historian. About, you know, about, about communist tyranny, I know next to nothing. So yeah, just... sorry, it's quite clear the NBA said, do not talk about this at all. There was a statement from Adam <laughs> Hop Silver Hop on Wikipedia, today. buddy. Yeah. <laughs> There's a statement from Adam Silver today saying, the NBA will not put itself in a position of regulating what players, employees and team owners say or will not say on these issues. We simply could not operate that way, which does seem in a bit of a discourse to what they actually did three days ago, but... Uh, you know, they, they just do what they want this to go away as quickly as possible. It's continuous with a broader issue in American American culture, which is the influence of uh, Chinese investment. Um, and I think one of the things that what one of the, the the interesting things about this is, are we watching the demise of American soft power? And I think countries like Australia have really ridden on the coattails of America's soft power, its ability to promote ideas that we agree with around the world in ways that are entertaining for people so that they get this message. Like the very basis of American film, right, is the idea we watch a protagonist overcome a struggle and he does it in the end with his kind of individual gumption, right? That's the basic American story. And America's ability to promote these kinds of stories through its movies, through its music, through its sport is diminishing as the world continues its extremely naive uh, economic collaboration with China, with the Chinese Communist Party. You have to be careful to separate them from the, the Chinese people. Um, and I think what we what we see here is a continuity with, say, Tom Cruise in the latest Top Gun movie having the, the patch on his back, having to have the Taiwan flag taken off it, and things like this. The ability of Chinese investors, who are all they keep them. This is the important thing. They keep their money as long as they tow the Chinese Communist Party line. And the Chinese Communist Party has extreme soft power these days and it's come to the NBA. But, uh, but I don't see, see I, I agree with you that the soft power, the American soft power is in decline at that margin. But I do not see a cultural soft power coming out from, um, from Chinese investment because we are still watching these hero Movie. Now, now, of course, it's the Avengers, so there's like 90 heroes. But, you know, they are none, nonetheless heroes. And, and well, all they're all anti-heroes. Ask yourself, ask yourself <laughs> now. No, no, seriously. Ask yourself whether Jimmy Stewart would have a career these days. Let, let, me, let me finish the point, though. We are not watching China cultural soft power, and we are not consuming Chinese music and Chinese movies and Chinese uh, podcasts. And but, but we are doing that for... The United States. So, and my my claim is there that not that China doesn't have the economic capacity to do that, or even that there's a cultural desire to do it. My claim is they are terrible at it. Okay. They uh, are absolutely and, and, abominable and at Ameri soft power. And the Americans are not as bad as you say. I mean, there's a reason why the protesters in Hong Kong are waving the American flag, and it's not just to get on American TV. The and and the backlash to all of this in America on on both sides of Congress and on podcasts like this one, um, it, it shows that uh, just because the business community might be rolling over doesn't mean that these are widely shared uh, values. Um, soft power, uh, America needs to find a new way to do it to square this circle, but it's, it's not dead yet. I think it's a bit hollow to say that we're not, you know, consuming Chinese movies. Well, first of all, there's a language barrier, but the more pernicious threat is the fact that the American movies are being Chinified. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't need, they don't need to do it through Just some sort it's of not Beijing Mandarin. film company. Hollywood is doing it for them. Have you seen The Wandering Earth? <laughs> it is It is awful. The book is it amazing. Is, is so terrible. we should all be consuming Chinese sci-fi novels. That's my claim. But anyway, yeah, yeah, nonetheless. The, yeah, the novels have some merit. The movies are terrible. 
Well, thank you very much, James. No, please. We much appreciate your um, deep insights into the NBA culture. The, yeah, the IPA uh, has paid you a lot of money to really dig into. Thank you, yeah. And uh, I look forward to, like, I'll monitor the league for another year or so just to make sure any other stories come out. He's going to put his NBA more, like, more, subscription more, I, on the IPA yeah. tab. Like, <laughs> yeah, IPA research. That's a nice little metaphor. I don't think that, that one's going to get past the account. That explains what he does all day. Yeah. It's IPA research. Not anymore. No, no. Not anymore. Thank Thanks, you, James. We'll be back in a moment. Cheers. Welcome back. Great contribution from James Bolt there. We have now reached the uh, segment of the show where we do books and culture. Chris, what have you got? So speaking of the hero story that um, Andrew has described, I watched All the President's Men, the story about the Washington Post investigation of the impeachment of Richard Nixon, or at least the investigation of the 1972 burglary of the Democratic headquarters at the Watergate apartments. Now, I expected to be watching this to learn a little bit more about the impeachment of Richard Nixon. Turns out this movie has basically nothing to do with the impeachment of Richard Nixon. It's all about how amazing journalists are. Your favourite topic. (laughs) Which is um, something that, yes, I I will explain, really gets me going. Um, uh, The... So so you actually see journalists these days recommending to younger journalists that they watch this movie and you can understand why because the journalists, of course, um, uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein spend a massive amount of time digging up this great conspiracy that goes all the way to the White House and then all the way to Richard Nixon and they pull down a president because of their dogged work and I have no doubt that a lot of that dogged work occurred. Now, it doesn't really occur these days anymore. There's no way that um, a newspaper would send a journalist out for six weeks to dig around library archives. But what it really triggered in my mind was many of my opinions about journalism as a profession. So there's this scene in there, one of the key scenes that really gets them going is um, they call up the White House librarian. So the White House has a library and they call the librarian direct and they ask her, oh, has this person took out any books on this topic? And she immediately goes, oh, yes, absolutely. No, he was here yesterday. Now, the lesson there, and and then that becomes a thing and she tries to roll it back and then, oh, we never spoke and all that sort of stuff. But the lesson there is, and this is what I try to teach people, Journalists have this belief in themselves that their secret power is that they can call up anyone they want in the country and demand answers. And for some reason, all of us, we, the general public, answer those questions because we think it's necessary. We think they have some sort of power to answer those questions. They don't. But the power of the journalist is that belief that be- that shared belief. Is it you that belief, or is it just like a deeper, like human decency thing, where someone <laughs> asks you a question, you feel like, oh, like, oh, answer yeah, it yeah. no, no, it, 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 I mean, it, that's what it's, it's playing. It's also their skill. No, 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 no. I know. And some of them are better at it than others. Some of them are better at it than others, and and I've noticed since I've been involved in. Um, uh, public debate that more and more you get these questions over email which is just idiotic because you can just delete the email and not worry and (laughs) and, or you delay and they're like oh yeah i need this email uh, back but But, but it's the the best journalists are the ones that call you and they're like oh look i'm 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 about to go to print you know have you done this and you go oh my god i have to tell you somehow no you don't you don't have to tell you now thank you for our uh, media training 101 uh, (laughs) uh, course there that we give everyone at the ipa Uh, but yeah no No, uh, it's an important movie because i i i think it actually destroyed a generation of journalists 
um, because they were all forced to watch it. And the heroes were these investigative reporters who brought down a president. And uh, not just in the US, but I think it, it, it came into Australia. Uh, this idea was that that then was the job of the journalist. The job of the journalist was to bring down presidents. It, it is to bring down governments and that if they just work hard enough, they will find a conspiracy. Um, so this, is, this was really, I think, the end of the era when reporting had anything to do with just reporting on the news. Yeah. It, it was journalism with an agenda and, and has been ever since. But it's, uh, even without going... It's not even the agenda. It's the it's the practice and the the thought process that they come to. So they came to this conspiracy or they came to this um, uh, discovery because they matched lots of different people that had lots of different relationships. So so there's a string of relationships that goes from the Watergate burglars all the way to and then that person said something to that person. That's a person, and eventually you get to Richard Nixon himself. Now that happened but so many journalists at least in my experience these days are just looking for well you know that person once worked with that person so therefore there's an obvious connection and that person was once funded by the Koch brothers or Koch industries in the United States so therefore if I plug it all together over time it becomes this person is funding this person to do that person when in fact I mean certainly in Australia we're a small country and everyone knows each other and the journalists that have this idea that we've got to uncover these relationship conspiracies actually present all those fake news and those false narratives that um, that really just confuse public discussion. Are we thinking here of the recent the story yesterday in the Guardian? About, oh, which one was that? Uh, Sorry, I missed that Scott, one. Scott Morrison's nanny's husband or something. He's a well-known. He's a well-known. So alt-right blogger. Yeah. So. There's this alt-right blogger, his wife is friends and has always been friends apparently since they were children with Scott Morrison's wife and The Guardian wants to know whether this bloke has Scott Morrison's ear and is steering him in towards the direction of QAnon. So explain QAnon. I don't know if we have enough time. No, I don't think we have enough time. Give a vibe of QAnon. No, no, no. Like I say, this is what journalism has been ever since. All the President's Men starring Robert Redford and... Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein, yes. And Bob Woodward then produced a series of incredibly dull books. Incredibly dull books. Yeah, no, a sequence of books that are just getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So a book that is not dull... Is this one by uh, the great Douglas Murray, um, uh, the UK-based journalist uh, and commentator who uh, was, of course, interviewed by our very own James and Pete for the Young IPA podcast, I think the most watched podcast uh, or broadcast we've ever made uh, at the IPA, a terrific interview which I commend to you. So this book is called The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. Uh, it's just out. Uh, I just finished it last night, so this is not a, a mature take. Um, <laughs> uh, you'll have to read the next IPA review for that when uh, Bella Debrera gives us one. But um, it, I do recommend this book. It's very thoughtful. Um, is, Murray is a journalist, a chronicler, uh, sort of a gentle thinker, so it's not like he's gone out with some screaming hypothesis about identity politics uh, and then measured all evidence against that. But he is trying to get to what he calls the madness, the madness of the crowds, this collision of uh, intersectionality, the obsession with race, class, gender, uh, the idea that somehow they can all be reconciled. 
Um, there's some tremendous individual stories in there. Uh, he starts, um, he talks about um, the experience of uh, gay politics because uh, he himself is, is gay and remembers what it was like when just equality was what you sought. Um, and he talks about Martin Luther King and what it was like when uh, in race politics what you sought was equality. Similarly with feminism, what you sought was equality. And now we've moved on to something where it's not equality, it's, it's a certain um, uh, uh, simultaneously... Uh, you can't hold both ideas at once, but they do. It's the idea that um, we're all equal and can do anything, but actually we're better. Our moral claims are actually superior to anyone who is not uh, in the minority race, uh, who is not female and who is not gay. Um, so it's sort of this uh, status game. And he says they're irreconcilable, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't. Not everything has to make sense in this crazy world we live in now. And it's just about uh, social media, getting on crowds, destroying people's careers. Um, you know, people being hounded out of out of journalism or universities, um, professors being uh, assaulted. You know, at, at universities um, uh, or, or visiting speakers like Charles Murray. Uh, and then he sort of brings it home with um, what's a much more recent phenomenon, which is uh, the rise of uh, trans and trans politics. And as he points out, this has all happened so incredibly quickly. The world has just flipped in five years. And I think that's why it's good that Murray is sort of gently investigating and trying to tease out the issues because it's, it's, it's like this experience of, my God, what just happened? And uh, so this, this is not the, the end of this discussion, um, but I think uh, it's the start of one. And at the end of the book, he talks about ways we can find our way back. Um, but there's no doubt that um, where, what he shows about identity politics is uh, that it is a disastrous turn of events. Uh, it's anti-freedom. It's, it's got uh, this sort of collision of Marxist and postmodernist thinking is is going to lead us down some terrible byways before we find our way out again. So there's a cheery thought for yeah, me. No, I, I, what strikes me as you were talking is that identity politics always requires the next group of oppressed people. It always requires – so after um, there's the same-sex marriage debate and same-sex marriage is largely legal in, in um, across the developed world, then then you need – okay, well, that's – that's so we need to talk about trans people and then we need to, we'll need to talk about um, – uh, another That's another true. oppressed group. So and re it, it, that, I, I reckon that movement that you've seen very rapidly is probably a sign of um, rapid changes in in um, the legal framework around those. Yeah, around those no, no, that's exactly right. But 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 it brings its own contradiction because, say, Jermaine Greer, who's, who's been a you know, famous feminist for uh, you know fifty or sixty years, um, when uh, she said, "Yeah, trans, great. That's that's your choice." Whatever, but um, uh, I, I remain interested in the issues facing uh, women who are biologically women, and that only. So she's now been shamed out of it. She's been declared no longer a feminist because she won't embrace trans politics. Um, Peter Thiel was out and proud as a gay man living in America until he backed Trump when it was written that he's no longer gay. <laughs> Kanye West was... Uh, a very seen as a very successful member of the African American community until he came out and supported Trump, and it's now been declared that he's not actually black. You've become a white man. You know this is the uh, the madness of the sort of 
desire to always push the boundary, push harder, find new oppressions, the oppression Olympics. It, it's it's not going to end well. Zach, <laughs> get me out Zach. of this hole I've just dug for myself. Zach watched a movie. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I saw The Joker and I don't know where you want to start um, as far as just very briefly going through all of the controversies because you have apparently it's going to be um, some sort of attraction for shooters that there's going to be an emulation of what happened in Colorado with the Dark Knight Riders. Um, there's accusations that it's some sort of justification for incels, these young male virgins that the um, media has decided to vilify because they're on Reddit and all those other things that they hate. Um, and there's also all these negative reviews um, that's come out basically because a lot of the left-wing media don't like to think about the idea that a white male could possibly be oppressed anymore, that that is somehow subversive and right-wing to say that a white male could be oppressed. Um, I thought, obviously, none of that is actually part of the movie. It's an example of the left eating itself, because if anything, there's a sort of justification for left-wing terrorism that goes on throughout the um, movie. But I actually quite liked it. I think it was... Um, important that they did this sort of vague 70s setting where you could really buy into how bad Gotham as this pseudo New York is and how bad um, the protagonist's life is because there is that sort of context in late in late 70s America where yeah the world was pretty terrible back then. Particularly New York feels very broken the public transport looks broken everything's yeah. Yeah and I've got I've got a bit of a soft spot for um any modern movie that doesn't slavishly follow the three-act structure. I've been so sick of formulaic movies. I've been so sick of um, superhero movies, frankly, and I'm not sure whether um, I should feel happy that they're finally doing something within the superhero genre that's so different that actually feels like a real movie again or whether I should be sad that... To make a movie like this, you have to shove the Joker into it. It has to be about um, this supervillain. That that's the only way that's going to get made. Um, it's it's an homage to Taxi Driver. It doesn't quite reach the heights of some of the movies yeah. that it's trying to play out. But it's more about the context and how refreshing it is to see a movie like this. Yeah, no, uh, I watched it. I, I, the only thing that annoyed me, I mean, as a as a as a movie, it's it's terrifically well made, and as you say, it's a character study. And what a shame that you have to make it about you know a psychopath to to get it funded. But there was a little bit of um, sort of Hollywood BS in that they they threw. There's a lot of ideas in there that can be interpreted a lot of different ways, and and I don't think there's a take. I think this is how you have this sort of faux intellectualism in in Hollywood. You just sort of throw these ideas in. You know, there's sort of there's a bit of popular up- uprising. There's a bit of you know, the backstory about victimhood, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. Well, what Renee noticed it, that uh, around all the different arguments you've had around it, one of the sort of subtler things that Renee noticed because of her background was that it's actually you c- could be interpreted as a justification for people with mental illness not taking their medication um, because there is that stuff towards the start where it seems like it's um, more justifying that we need to put more money into mental health, these um, therapists, 
has to stop seeing him because of um, public alert, spending. Spoiler alert. That's right at the start. That's right at the start. <laughs> but yeah, that, that defines later on. Later on, he stops taking his medication. And it seems almost to be a positive thing. <laughs> it was never going to end well. Speaking of uh, medication, Andrew. Uh, yeah, so I was. I have medication. <laughs> That's great. I really no, like that no, one. No, good, no, I, I not not the, Andrew. The, the topic. Ob- <laughs> the obvious segue was like from one antihero to another. Oh, okay. But no, no. this was much more clever. Um, <laughs> Josh, can we re-record that? No, no, no. no, no, no. Yours, yours was better. Uh, so, <laughs> I have introduced my wife to Breaking Bad. She's never seen it before. Um, we have watched um, Better Call Saul. And I uh, signed up for the free month, of which is the prequel. Of, so you've actually seen free. it in the order of the the time order. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the signed up for the free month of, of Stan <laughs> to to burn through Breaking Bad, um, which is about for anyone who missed uh, the Zeitgeist, um, is about a chemistry teacher who finds out he has um, what looks to be terminal cancer, and to make money for his family, he decides to put his chemistry skills to the purpose of cooking the most pure crystal methamphetamine the southwest of the United States has ever seen. And the story progresses uh, as he becomes more and more involved in this business. And along for the ride is a a sidekick that he kind of ropes in as a former student of his who's a low-level drug dealer and can help him get into this business. Um, And so the reason I said that the obvious segue I thought was for one antihero to another is because as we were talking about with the, this narrative of like a hero, watching a protagonist overcome some kind of struggle, um, the antihero has been more and more of a theme in American storytelling um, over the course of my adult life. Um, Breaking Bad is part of what was called the golden age of television that started with The Sopranos, um, went Mad Men, um, these shows that tended to have a, a male anti-hero a guy who was flawed but you couldn't help barracking for him anyway because he had such style usually it's style that gets you on board um and so what what's interesting about that for me anyway is is why fixate on the anti-hero uh and not a traditional hero um jimmy stewart never would have cooked meth did you write that down? No. <laughs> there's, a, there's a long history of antiheroes in Hollywood. Now, whether antiheroes are now more dominant is an interesting discussion to have. Again, but even Batman what, what was an antihero. So you like, yeah, make yeah. a movie about Joker, but nobody's the back of so, a. But there's, but, but then, the then, then maybe, maybe this distinction isn't that useful. Maybe they're sort of antiheroes for good, or, or or now we're more interested in their flaws than their. Yeah. Although this 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 uh, conviction that movies should be morally complex is perhaps what feeds into Scott's observation that the underlying thesis of some movies is not always clear. Um, yeah. That it's more a melange of different ideas um, rather than uh, a clear thesis. Breaking Bad, you spend a lot of time waiting for his comeuppance. Um, because you think that yeah. you know eventually this should be bad for him. But <laughs> what's it, what's what's great about Breaking Bad is that is that it's a, a, a character piece as well as a really um, f- actually f- of, of these golden era stories. It's probably the most fun one mm. um, and funniest. And I mean, funniest. It's, it, it, it's a comedy. Yeah, okay. apart from season two, which is incredibly dark. Um, but watching Walt manifest this flaw that was deep in him already. 
Um, so it's called Breaking Bad, but there's this question about whether Walt was already kind of a bad guy. Uh, and this was just an excuse for him to do bad things. And he keeps doing it after he needs the money. Whereas yeah, his, yeah. his drug dealing sidekick, Jesse, is deep down uh, a good person who has had a somewhat traumatic upbringing in various ways. Um, he's kind of a flawed character. Um, and watching their paths kind of intersect as, as their, their essential natures are kind of borne out. It's a very clever storytelling device, which makes Breaking Bad really compelling even when it gets very dark. Yeah, and... Speaking of anti-hero, I mean, it has it has been part of Hollywood forever. In in the uh, 30s, with the gangster films, um, the the compromise they always used to make, yeah, with the with the censors, um, was they'd have these gangsters like Jim, you know, Jimmy Cagney would play these these gangsters who would be tremendously charismatic and successful and well dressed, as you say. But I think I think uh, you no, can but, make the argument. But, but, but then it. but then at the end of the movie, that this was the deal they with have the censors. Yeah. They, they yeah. get shot. Yeah. And as they lay dying, they lean into the camera and they but say, I think, crime I think you make the argument is more, <laughs> it's more prominent these days. And part of it is this theme of, this postmodern theme of deconstruction. So where does that take you? Well, if we deconstruct the hero story, we end up with an anti-hero. One of the great films, and it pains me to say this, one of the great films is almost responsible for this trend, and that's Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood revisionist Western. And that is, that is rare in this kind of genre, or at least for the time, was that it didn't pull its punch at the end. There was no comeuppance, there was no redemption for Clint Eastwood's character in that story. In fact, when they get to the bad guy, Gene Hackman, and he gets him on the ground and he has a gun pointed at his head, he basically just says, good night, and he shoots him. And like, now, there that, was no- Now that is a clear spoiler, I have to say. <laughs> well, this is a 25 year old movie. Uh, and Gene Hackman's final words? I was building a house. <laughs> he was about to go straight, too late. <laughs> Too late, she cried. And uh, we have reached the end of the show. Uh, thank you for listening and watching Looking Forward, the IPA's podcast. Uh, if you want to f- uh, subscribe, please do so now on the app. If you want to learn more, go to ipa.org.au. You can learn, uh, read the bios of our uh, my wonderful uh, uh, co-hosts and guests today. Uh, we'll be back with more. Oh, sorry, I should say thank you to Chris Berg. Yes, thank you. And I want to point out something else. One of our close colleagues and one of the um, IPA Looking Forward podcast guests, regular guest, Aaron Lane, got his PhD yesterday. So he's now Dr. Aaron Lane. And congratulations from the Looking Forward podcast, yeah. Aaron. Well done, Aaron. And uh, another doctor, Dr. Zach Gorman, thank you for being on. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Big uh, shout out to James Bolt, our special guest for today, and to Josh Stranger in the control room. It's been great. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. 